0: Okay, so uh, welcome back to Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter seven. Yes, we know. I know we skipped one, we skipped three, four, five, and six, and we're jumping right to seven. Um, if you're looking at Daniel and you remember the portions, portions of the book, chapter two is a is a real anchor sort of prophecy. It gives us a broad, sweeping scope of time in ta- uh, chapter two. The intervening chapters in chapter one, you have an introduction to where we are and what's going on. In chapter three, four, five. And six, you have these other pictures of what's going on in Babylon. You have the the impact of of Nebuchadnezzar, the dream as he responds to it, builds this this giant gold statue and tries to get people to worship that in chapter three. Chapter four, um, you have the, the beginnings of a story about Nebuchadnezzar, which takes up part of four and part of five. And as you start working your way through all of these, they're basically stories of what's going on. People who are interacting with God and Daniel through Daniel, and then the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar is one of the big ones. We talked about that today. If you didn't see our live stream from church service today, it's a good thing for you to check out. It'll give you a real handle on how this massively significant king who reigns for 43 years, how he is impacted by Daniel, his testimony, the experiences he's having with uh, with the prophecies, really, is he's having some personal interactions with God himself and how those things impact him. And So if you missed today, you might want to check that out because it really does help you understand how this man is finally fully converted. You see bits and pieces of it through the early chapters, but you finally get a full-on picture of it. And then you have that famous famous place where the handwriting is on the wall in chapter 6. If, if you've ever used that phrase, the handwriting was on the wall, it's a biblical phrase from the book of Daniel. We pick up in chapter 7 and we really have a new day for Daniel. Something different is happening. It's the first time one of the visions that we see in the book is actually a vision that Daniel had and it says it pleased or I'm sorry, in the first year of Belshazzar king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and a vision. ...of his head while on his bed, and he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. The main fact I want you to catch is, this is personal to Daniel now. This is Daniel's dream. Daniel is actually now beginning to hear the Lord speak to him. And so it's important for you to understand, Daniel has been in Babylon now for a long time. He's been in Babylon now through all of his best years. You start thinking about, what were your best years? I've always thought, when I go to heaven, I want to be twenty-five. Because that's when I felt about the best. I had enough common sense not to get in the same trouble I got in when I was 18. And it was just a good time. 25 was a really good age. And I thought, heaven's age, must, you must feel like you're 25. Most of your capacities are working and your body is floating along. It's doing so well. So Daniel misses all of that. He comes in probably as a teen, mid to late teen. He passes through those 20s, he passes through those 30s, his 40s. He's now in his 50s, he may even be in his 60s, depending on how you calculate the days he gets there. Daniel is now getting into the other side of his age group, his age of the t- at the time. And now, finally, he hears from God. Anybody been waiting to hear from God for a long time? You know, we pray, we ask for God's guidance, we ask for God's leadership, we ask for God to help, and we don't get it he waited all these years all the way through nebuchadnezzar's life until he finally gets to this next thing he finally he's finally now 50 years plus in babylon and he's now finally hearing from god personally so i just want to catch that into your head i want you to hold on to that because we're going to come back to it and i'm going to start laying down some pieces that will that will interface seven eight and nine and so i'm going to start telling you Catch this and keep this. Catch this and keep this. Catch this this and remember this. As we go through tonight, and then tomorrow night, and then we pick up 9 next Friday. So here we are in Daniel chapter 7. It's the first year of Belshazzar. Daniel has this dream. This dream belongs to him. It's a dream of his own. I want you to look at the lion there. Do you note the wings on the bottom of the lion? So you can see the mane of the lion here, and then you can see the wings right here. Um, This is actually a picture I took of a wall from Babylon. So um, when some archaeologists were there in the area around Babylon, they took a bunch of the bricks. They took a bunch of these, particularly these ones that were glazed because they could see that the animals and the colors and things were there in the, in the brick. And they hauled them back, and they were in the Berlin Museum. They reconstructed Ishtar's Gate, the main gate for, for entering Babylon, in the, in the uh, museum in Berlin. And if you ever get a chance to go, go take a look at this if you see nothing else. I'll have a picture of it later, a full-size picture of it. You can see uh, in just a bit, but this is uh, the the lion with the wings as a symbol of Babylon. It'll become important to you in just a minute. So Belshazzar, as the king, this is the first year of Belshazzar. His dad is a guy named Nabonidus. You don't have to remember all these names. You don't. There's no test. Nabonidus is a son of King Nebuchadnezzar. He actually has a fairly decent reign, but in 552, he captures this community here. This is the well at Tima. It's in the Arabian, in in what is modern-day Arabia. He captures Tima. He likes it so much that he moves there. Well, when a king moves away from home, he needs to find somebody to watch watch the home fires. So he has Belshazzar, his son, who had been the head of the army, head of the military, Take over as the king. So this is kind of a co-regency. It's not all that uncommon in the, in the ancient times to have co-regents of father and son um, on the throne. He's called, Belshazzar is called Nebuchadnezzar's son, though he is his grandson. It's just a way of describing his relationship that isn't quite as accurate as we'd like it to be. But I wanted you to see this giant well here that is still there. This spring has been functioning out in the desert. For for all of these years, this is 500 B.C., and we're now at 2020 A.D. So this this well has been going for 3,000 years and providing for this city. Okay, these are actually ropes. These were actually where the ropes would be to lower buckets into the well. And you can see you're gathered around the entire well, dropping your your bucket in and getting water. So this was providing enough water for the entire city it was an oasis out in the desert and for whatever reason Nabonidus decides this is where he wants to go get away from it all it's the palm springs experience if you think of it that way this is a guy who can live anywhere he wants to and so this is his version of palm springs he moves off into the desert into this town and that's how this co-regency gets rolling Nabonidus is selected to be king in 556 after some overlap with nebuchadnezzar there's some overlap between the two of them as well his son, Delshazzar, is co-regent from 553 to 552. As you can see, he's not solely in charge for very long. Our story picks up in that first year. Daniel has been in Babylon for 54 years. Think about it. 54 years in Babylon, in captivity, before he hears from God. You could get really discouraged in 54 years. You could quit your whole relationship with God in 54 years. People have. People have in a lot shorter time, in fact. I want you to remember what he's been through in those 54 years. As this whole mess starts for him, it starts with him enduring the siege of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar. A siege is not a great thing. They block your access to getting out of the city. They block your access to food coming into the city. They do everything they can to make life in the city miserable so you'll give up. Nebuchadnezzar has besieged the city... After the siege of the city, and they lose, he's captured by Babylon. So Daniel is once, th- once through the siege, captured by Babylon, and then chosen for exile. Woo-hoo, good for him. He was chosen to go into exile. Would you like to be on that team? Hey, everybody wants to go to Babylon. Raise your hand. No one raises their hand. They pick them. You, 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 you. And they tried to pick people who they thought would be intelligent who could learn the, the Babylonian languages, who could be a leader in Babylon itself, and they tried to pick young people. So we think Daniel is probably under 20 years old when he's picked, when he's chosen for this team. He takes a 1,000-mile march. Remember we showed you that last night? Is that big, big crescent that was on the screen from, Je, from Jerusalem up through Damascus area, up into the mountains, down the Euphrates River to Babylon, which is about 400 miles across the desert, straight from Jerusalem, east and west thousand mile march to Babylon. Then he's made a eunuch. Could I just add a couple of things about this? There's no anesthetic. And there's no real sense of the importance of cleanliness in surgery. So just understand that this is a significantly important and difficult thing that he endured. He's co- the, he endures the confrontation about the food in chapter 1. Remember, he he says, hey... We want to eat what we want to eat, and there's that back and forth. He wins. It's a blessing to him in the end. But he had to muster up the courage to say, yeah, I, I'm going to pick a stand on this food issue. Um, he Death threats from the king's dream in chapter 2. Remember the death threats on him? Death threats on his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, also because of King Nebuchadnezzar's hot temper and King Nebuchadnezzar's activity in, this, in that case with a giant idol. And now 54 years living in Babylon. So I just want you to catch what it was. We last night talked about how does this guy remain calm? How does he stick to this stillness that's in him? How does he really get what Psalm 46.10 is? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth. I will be exalted among the nations. Be still. He gets it. He holds on to it for 54 years before God speaks to him. And actually, when God starts speaking to him, he starts having less stillness. We'll get on to that as well. He remains faithful through the silence of God. And I want to speak to those of you who have prayed and prayed and prayed for something. To, to recall you to remain faithful through the silence of God. When you're hearing from God, when God is giving you the word and you're catching it and you're getting it, and, it's, it's, and you're, you're just in that connection with God, it's easy to be faithful. It's much harder to be faithful when the heavens are silent. I was talking to someone the other day, and we were discussing a prayer that they had. And You know how you'll say, I I said hello to somebody, and all I heard was crickets? Yeah, well, we were talking about someone said, you know, I was praying, and I was asking God for something, and it was just crickets, nothing, didn't hear a thing. If this is an example for any of us, it's an example of faithfulness when the heavens are silent. This guy doesn't stop praying, we find out in chapter 6. He doesn't give up. chapter 5. He doesn't quit when he's brought up against a difficult situation. Hard times don't stop him. His assurance about who God is isn't dependent upon the things around him. He goes through a re-education process. And I want to speak to you, if you're out there um, tonight and you've been in one of our universities, um, boy, you have been going through a a real re-education process. Because there is something in America today that says science is more significant than God. And there is something in America today, and among professors in America today, particularly in the sciences, that has to, to, to fight and confront your belief in God. I don't know why this has happened. I don't know why suddenly there's this extreme, extreme activity in opposition to people who have a strong belief in God. But I want to tell you, you need not let go of your faith. Your, your faith is not without support. If you need to talk to me about it, talk to me. Call me. If you need some resources, there are plenty of them. You, have, you guys are so much better at searching Google than I am. Go on to look up intelligent design. Look up creationism. There's lots of support for it. There's some very, very, very bright people who can help you discover that there is a reference. There is support for your faith. So I'm going to drop it there, but I want you to understand that he went through a reeducation process, not unlike what is being done in our world today. And he comes out of it still faithful to God. Here's a couple of his anchors three, four, five. First of all, his personal practice. We talked last night about this one. He grinds down into his personal practice, he gets to the baselines of what he does. He makes a stand on food. Food is not a huge deal, but for Daniel, he says, Look, I'm going to start with ground one, ground level, start with food. And the, the food he requests is even beyond the requirement of Leviticus 11. It's beyond the requirement of what he was doing at home. He asks for a level of, of food. He asks to eat pulse, which is translated in some of your Bibles, just vegetables. He asks for, Look, can I just have vegetables? Can I live on vegetables? And some of you are discovering the vegetarian diet. Some of you have known it your whole life. And it is better for you. Daniel picks a diet that is better for him. He goes to a a ground level on his practice of his faith. He and his friends decide not to worship the idols of Babylon. They won't bow down to the idols of Babylon. They won't bend a knee to the pressure of the culture around them. They decide to stand for God, even if it costs them their lives. Daniel doesn't end up on the plain of Duro when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told, bend the knee to this statue, bow to this, to this idol. Now think about it for a second. You're in a giant crowd of people. Everybody's bowing down. No one said you had to actually worship. No one said you actually had to pray. They just said you had to bend your knees. And these guys said, no, we're not even going to pretend like we worship an idol. We're going to take a stand here. And they did, and they stuck out, the three of them like three sore thumbs among the crowd. And therefore were thrown into a furnace that was intended probably for the building of this statue and therefore for smelting metals, and they were thrown into this smelting furnace to tr- in an attempt to kill them, and miraculously God saves them and accompanies them inside that fr- that furnace when it comes to daniel 's confrontation himself when Nebuchadnezzar dies and the hands are changed in the in leadership when the uh, it 's after this story, but it, when the when the Persians actually take over. They back one of the Persian kings into, the, into a corner about Daniel and try to get them to, to, to capture, cap, catch Daniel praying by, make, by making prayer illegal. Daniel goes up into his regular place and prays in his u- regular and usual manner. He could have closed the window. He could have hid. But he doesn't. Because that prayer is part of his testimony to the people of Babylon. So he opens the window and he prays. Just like he had every day, three times a day. And that's what he gets arrested for and thrown into the lion's den, his prayer. And God shuts the lion's mouths and protects him in that situation again. I want to talk about his personal practices as an anchor in a difficult time. Our personal practices, the practices of our faith, when times get tough, need to get stronger, need to get more careful. We need to be more specific about what we're, what we're doing with our prayer life, our Bible study life, our personal life our food, our sleep, all of those bits and pieces. Those are the things that will carry us through difficult times and not, as Pastor Marlene said today, allow us to go crazy because the times are crazy. Ezekiel and Jeremiah. The books of Ezekiel and Jeremiah are there for him. We know he studies Jeremiah because it's going to come up in chapter 9, and I'll point it out when it does. But Ezekiel is being written while Daniel is there in Babylon. Ezekiel is a prophet in Babylon with him. So he has the support of Ezekiel and the words of Ezekiel that he is writing as part of the way his life is supported. I love the fact that when you read Ezekiel and Jeremiah today, you're actually reading books that Daniel is also reading. It's cool to me to be holding a book in my own hand in modern times that the prophet Daniel actually used. And Nebuchadnezzar, I put him on here because the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar finally gives his heart to God, when that... When he finally swings across, and we don't know how far he comes. As was pointed out today, we, we don't know that Nebuchadnezzar became a keep-a-wearing Jew, you know, the keep us the hat right? We don't know that he began to practice all of Judaism, but we know that he surrendered to the Most High God. He had a, he had a, a start in chapter 2, and he fails. He has a start in chapter 3, and he fails. And finally, after seven years eating grass, crawling around like a cow in the yard, He comes to his senses, looks up to the heavens, humbles himself before God, and becomes a follower of God. But those practices, those events, seeing this man's life begin to change, impact him. And they change who he is. Prophetically, this is going to come up again. We'll point it out to you when that happens as well. So I want to go through. I know this is all pretty introductory stuff that I'm doing so far. I want to go through the outline structures in Daniel. Daniel is structured under something called a chiasm. This is a ziggurat. This is a type of temple that would actually have been built in Babylon and areas around it. It's this levels of sort of a pyramid style. Not a straight up pyramid, but a sort of a stair step pyramid style. <clears throat> this chiastic structure that I'm going to talk to you about, some of you are pretty familiar with. It takes something at the beginning and ties it to something in the end. And it goes up the, the process like that. So one in ten... 2 and 9, 3 and 8, get the picture? As it's kind of setting out the outline for you. And usually as it climbs up, it's kind of trying to tell you something really important at the top, wherever that top ends up. So in this case, um, 8 and 9 are, are, are uh, yeah, eight, 6 and 8 are on the top, are the next. And then I'll have to look it up because I can't keep my head around it right at the moment. But what I want you to see is some parallels here between this. You can see them, and in the book you'll know they're there. So Daniel chapter 2 aligns with Daniel 7 that we're going to talk about tonight. This is the reason I'm showing this chiastic structure, because I want you to see that first part. But I also want you to see that Daniel chapter 3, and the threat for his friends of death and being thrown into this this furnace, is parallel with Daniel chapter 6, when Daniel himself is threatened with death and thrown into a lion's den. Daniel chapter 4 and daniel chapter 5 in those moments of conversion those moments of altercation between them that's what's happening in the in those two up there um belshazzar's decision to not follow god and nebuchadnezzar's decision to follow god are compared and contrasted in four and five okay so i just want you to catch it two and seven three and six four and five and we'll catch catch them here so here's daniel four and five nebuchadnezzar and his decision to follow god The handwriting on the wall, Belshazzar's decision not to follow God. Daniel chapter 3 and 6, there's the fiery furnace and the lion's den. The lions, I love the picture here. I love them because Daniel is older and he's bald. And because all the lions are standing there like, there's something scary around this guy that they're trying to avoid. Uh, Daniels 2 and 7. Daniel chapter 2, as you'll remember from last night, is that statue. Head of gold, chest and arms of silver. Belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay that we saw last night. The same time frames are being pointed out in the one we're going to talk through tonight. Only there's going to be a little bit added. And that will be the case for the next few. In 7, a little more is added. In 8, a little more is added. In 9, some some, uh, descriptions of the process are added. And that's what we'll cover in the next three times. So the first beast in Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel Daniel is having a dream. Daniel spoke, verse 2, saying, My vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens were stirring up the great sea. Typically, according to what we read in prophecy, when the waters are stirred up, we're talking about a place of great population. So a populous place. The waters were stirred up. The four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion with eagle's wings. So you got the lion with eagle's wings. I watched until the wings were plucked off, catch this piece, and it was lifted up from earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. The, the Bible, the prophecy that Daniel's, Daniel's getting is representing the change that takes place at the, at the core of Babylon as the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar takes place. This lion with the, with the eagle's wings is brought to stand up on its hind feet and the heart of a man is given to it. It's no longer a beast, devouring people it's now given this humanity as being described and the conversion of nebuchadnezzar with that humanity he probably recognized this as you did earlier when i pointed out it was all over the walls of babylon all over the walls of babylon are these images this is a legitimate one from the t- from the time period <clears throat> this is an archaeologically accurate portrayal because it they took these <clears throat> bricks and they just glued them back into the wall so you could see this was actually on the outside of the wall of Babylon. If you were walking up to the city of Babylon, you would see this. So when Daniel sees a, a lion with eagle's wings, he immediately knows what he's talking about. He knows that he's talking about Babylon here. He's seeing Babylon <coughs> in it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side. Our bear has a humpback on one side. And it had three, <coughs> excuse me, three ribs in his mouth. And here they are. The three ribs represent the three battles that it took for the Medes and the Persians to finally capture the the empire and the two sides saying that the Medes and the Persians were never really a balanced relationship. They were lopsided. three ribs in his mouth between his teeth. And then he said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. Persian empire is a very strong empire. Medo-Persian Empire is its beginning. Persian Empire becomes its end. Persian Empire covers from Egypt back to Persia, all the way out to the Indus Valley in India. It's important to understand that they are probably the first ones to put together uh, something like the Pony Express. They put these these, uh, communication places together. So from from point A to point B, there would be a rider who would take a message. So a message goes to point A. And is taken to point B with a horseback, on horseback. Then from point B to point C on horseback. From point C to point D on horseback. And they developed these patterns in order to reach the whole of the Persian Empire quickly. And so messages actually could be sent around the Persian Empire in a matter of days or weeks instead of months and years, like some messages would. If somebody were walking the whole thing the whole time, it would take a great deal of time to cover it. The Persians set up this infrastructure of messengers... And I want you to see that they predate, preset what Rome ends up doing. Rome ends up building roads that allow it to do the same thing. The Persians, though, do it with this sort of a pony express process. <coughs> the Persians then hold the empire much longer than the Romans do, or than the uh, sorry, than the uh, Babylonians do. They're a stronger and longer-lasting empire. The third beast, this one is representative of Greece under Alexander the Great. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard. See the leopard? He had on his back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. So the next empire is also given dominion. And he has four heads and four wings. He's like a leopard. There's a speed to this thing. There's a quickness to this thing. And there's an ability to hunt and and quickly defeat its enemies. Alexander the Great will rise out of Greece. And in three years, he will conquer the empire that is around him. So if you think of Greece, if you think of that empire being the Crescent, Greece is off the map. But they come onto the map and attack this region and take everything from Egypt to the Indus Valley as their empire. And the Greeks then control the same area. Remember that they're not really interested in the desert lands. They're not really interested in the sand countries out there. They're interested in the trade that's coming in from there, the trade that's coming from India, and the trade that's coming from China. They want to control that trade. They also want to be able to tax it. A lot of money, a lot of profit is made from taxing these people who are moving things around in these empires. So uh, don't think of these empires as being so hands out all the way, hands on all the way to India, but think of the, all the way the the people living in the Indus Valley sort of succumbing to the leadership of these empires, saying yes, for peace' sake. We will, we'll behave, we'll pay you the taxes that you want, we'll, we'll, we'll follow your rules. So think of these empires as being more controlling in these distant lands instead of actually having uh, sort of outposts there. You'll see when the Romans, your Roman history looks at it, Rome kind of stops at the Tigris and Euphrates and say, okay, everybody out there, behave yourself. If you get here and you're not behaving yourself, you're in trouble with us. But they just want control of the things coming in to those regions. Okay? A lot of power in that control. So Alexander the Great arrives, he tears through the world, conquers everything super fast, goes back to Greece, and he dies. And so they divide the nation up among his four generals. They try to give it to his children first, his son first, and um, that doesn't last very long. The son is quite young and he gets killed. His generals then take over and they split it up into four parts. The two who live closest to mainland Greece fight an immediate battle. One of them loses, and within a few years, it goes from four heads to three. But in the, in the biblical accuracy that we have all become accustomed to in Daniel, he tells us there were four to begin with, and there were four to begin with. So, good description of Greece. And then we come with this crazy-looking thing. This fourth beast. After this I saw in a night vision, and behold, a fourth beast. Dreadful and terrible and exceedingly, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth and it had ten horns on its head. How many toes are there on your feet? Ten. I had a friend in high in, in, uh well actually from elementary school through high school, who had twelve. He had twelve fingers, twelve toes, but that was, that was his own thing. Everybody else normally has ten. Remember that statue that you saw? Head of gold was Babylon. Chest and, belly, chest and arms were Medo-Persia. Belly and thighs were Greece. legs were Rome, feet with ten toes of iron and clay. Here we have representation of Rome as this really strong thing, this nation of iron. Again, this would not pass Daniel. He would catch that these things were happening. And it has ten horns on its head, just like the ten toes on the feet of the other one. So you can see the parallels. You can kind of catch what's going on. And Daniel certainly would have recognized this from the dream in chapter 2. It's been 54 years that he's been in Babylon, but he's not completely lost his mind. He remembers things. He remembers something like that as well. Now there's one more new element that comes up in this one. I was considering the horns. So he's looking at the horns. And there was another horn, a little one coming up. This is him. If you didn't know which one we were talking about, it's the one with the mouth. Okay? A little one came up, and he had... And there, were, there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. I use this illustration because I have never seen a better representation of this little horn power than that one. So Daniel is checking this out. He's looking at this thing. whoa, as I was considering the horns, this new little one popped out of the deal. I watched, kept watching, until thrones were put in place in chapter 9. And the Ancient of Days was seated. He sees this, this culmination of it. So he sees all of this stuff going on, and then he sees the inauguration of a new kingdom. What would he have seen? What did he see back in two? He saw this, this stone cut out without hands that strikes the image on its feet and grinds everything about the image into dust and it blows away like chaff on the wind. Now he sees these same kinds of powers coming up, including ten horns. Now, with the addition of this little one, but he sees that after that, again, the kingdom of God is set up. Thrones are, are set up. And one of the most powerful things stated in this entire uh, sort of judgment scene and throne scene here is that judgment was found on behalf of the saints. He says to the believers, God says to Daniel, and Daniel to us, you're going to win. Chapter 2 said to, to Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be lots of empires. There's going to be a long time out, but God is going to win. Eventually, God will set up his own kingdom. Now there's one more layer added for you, too. There's a layer added to the Roman thing, and there's that whole picture of the little horn, but there's a layer added for you and I. Judgment will be found on behalf of the saints. This is my favorite judgment passage in all the Bible. Because we tend to talk about the judgment fearfully. But the judgment for the saints is good news. If you are a follower of Jesus, it's good news. This judgment thing is good news for you. Because this passage is stating that when it comes to the, the judgment of those who have chosen to follow God, it's on the, the, the story they, they answer, the judge's report is on your behalf. The judge says we're taking all of those home with us. Judgment is found on behalf of the saints. And it's here in chapter 7 as Daniel is watching this thing unpack. I watched, keeps watching. What's his motivation? Because of the pompous words that were being spoken by the little horn. Daniel recognizes all of this stuff, but this little horn is concerning him. It's disturbing him. And I told you he got through all of these 54 years with a stillness. This vision disrupts the stillness, and it will do so all the way to chapter 9. And we'll follow through, we'll follow Daniel's discussion and his worry, but I want you to hang on to this piece, this fact. Daniel's stillness is now disrupted. And as you watch carefully what he's looking for and what he's looking at, it will start to make sense why. As I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the son of man coming in the clouds. This vision has the same pieces that he saw in chapter 2. One like the son of man comes. He sees this end of times time story, more details in it, an end time judgment thing, one like the son of man coming. You see all of these pieces sort of filling in more information. The information in this vision is really good news for Daniel. But Daniel has missed the good news because he's concentrating on the bad news. He's missed the good news because he's focused on this little horn. It's all he can focus on. It's all he can see. In the whole story, he knows, yeah, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Yeah, yeah, yeah got, 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 got I it, got it. The ten horns, okay, ten tones, I understand that. But where's this, this, this new horn? I, there was no new toe. What, what's the new horn? Is there some strange development? And he's watching because this little horn is speaking pompous words against the Lord, against God Most High. And as he's staring at, focusing in on this, he misses the other good news. He, he he spends no time emphasizing that judgment was had on behalf of the saints and that one like the Son of Man came to the earth. He sees the second coming and he doesn't grasp it because he's too focused on the bad news. I, I I want to tell you that we do this all the time with prophecy. We are regularly found digging into these same kind of weird dark holes with prophecy where we we take the worst news we can find in the prophet and we use that as our main thought and we miss the bigger picture. We do it with Revelation all the time. The book of Revelation traces these, these falls, these connections with God that fall into these deep dark distances from God. And every time you get into this deep hole in Revelation where it looks like, There's no way to get out of this. This looks like it could be the end. Jesus shows up every single time. There's a relationship with God. There's a declining relationship with God. There's a crash and burn moment, and Jesus shows up to rescue from the crash and the burning. Daniel watches as the earth's history goes flowing out before him. He gets this new piece of information, and I get it. He's curious about the new piece of information, but he misses the good news in the story for his focus on the bad news of the story. Very often, if you find yourself losing your stillness and striving and struggling and angry and frustrated and fearful, it's because you begin to focus on the wrong thing. The authority of God is taught to him. The judgment of God for him is taught to him. The returning of the Savior is taught to him. And he focuses instead on this loud-mouthed little horn. Daniel says he is grieved. The vision of my head troubled me and I came near to those who stood by and I asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So he goes and he finds an angel who's standing near him. and He says, hey, can you explain this all to me? What does he need to have explained? Everything is clear. Everything's the same as chapter two except for the little horn. He's focused in on it. So he goes and asks the angel, well, can you explain this to me? He says, the great beasts which are four, are four kings. He knew this. Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome, right? But the saints of the Most High receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So you know that kingdom you saw that broke up that that chapter 2 statue? That's the kingdom of God, and the saints receive the kingdom. Isn't that great news, Daniel? Isn't that awesome, Daniel? Well, kind of. I mean, it's good, but... What about this horn thing? Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with teeth of iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in broken pieces and trampled into residue with its feet. And the ten horns which are on its head, and the other horn. This is my real question: the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had the eyes and a mouth and which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than all of his fellows. He said, that little horn business, that one scares me. He said, it's it's, going to come up. Three of the others are going to be plucked out. We'll get into some of the granularity of this as we work it out. But he says, I I don't know what this is. I want to know what this is. Give me some specifics about the horn. The angel said to him, hey, uh, you know what? You win. You're going to win. He says, I don't care if we win. I want to know what happened with this horn. Can you please tell me about this horn thing? And again, if I can just repeat myself, here's Daniel missing the peace that was being offered because of what he doesn't know yet. The peace that's being offered because of his question. Be careful about letting your questions drive your peace. There's lots of answers in this story. But this man who has survived 54 years of really dreadful things is now driven off his restful, faithful moment by a question. Even the angel doesn't want to answer. It's almost like the angel saying, Daniel, don't worry. That's not a problem for God. He can handle little mouthy horns. He can handle this. You remember? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth. I will be exalted among nations. Remember, Daniel, I just told you judgment will be found on behalf of the saints. I just, I just told you the story, right? I just reminded you. You saw the, the, the coming of one like the Most High. You saw the whole story come to a conclusion. And I just told you the saints win. The people of God win. They, they get to inherit the kingdom. All of the sin and struggle and trauma of this world will go away. Daniel, stop focusing on the horn. Daniel can't. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing. This is what's bothering him. You see, Daniel doesn't have any concept of you. Daniel has no way to conceive that the Messiah would come and be rejected and Christianity would grow out of Judaism. He has no way of understanding that. He has no way of recognizing that this little horn power could be past Judaism, could be post-Judaism. He has no way of catching all of that and figuring that out. But he hears this, war against the saints and prevailing. And he thinks of this little horn as being another enemy of Israel who will prevail against Israel. He sits right now 50 years in Babylon. And he thinks, man, after being captive for all this time, is Israel just going to go back, reestablish the nation, and be destroyed? Is this power going to come up out of these 10 out of this fourth empire and destroy Israel again and prevail over Israel again because as far as Daniel understands the world the saints are Israel and everybody else is something else and so for him this sentence says and the horn was making war against Israel and prevailing against them until the ancient of days came he he sees this and he says According to what I just heard, this mouthy little horn is going to prevail against the people of Israel all the way to the second coming. Can you understand why that would be discouraging? All of the good news he's had is outweighed because he sees his family, his kindred, his nation, his people struggling all the way until the end of time. And I want to tell you that the Bible says that the people of God will struggle all the way until the end of time. Because on our planet, sin prevails. On our planet, sinful people win. On our planet, the most most hateful, mean people often take the day. The most despicable people often end up in leadership because they're willing to do whatever it takes to get there. We will deal with places... We, we think about our own our own country, and we live in such better circumstances than than a, than half the world I mean there are there are people much worse than anybody you 've got on the electorate right now. but I want you to understand the Bible does not promise everything 's going to be hunky dory until jesus comes it 's just the opposite that it says it says the world will have difficulty, there will be problems, there will be conflicts all the way until Jesus comes. You will face troubles you will face enemies people you know and love will actually give you over turn you over to some government official people who who you think you can trust will walk away from that trust he says there are going to be difficult times but he says in spite of the fact that there will be difficult times the ancient of days is coming the ancient of days is coming you see the story here the, the the lead is being lost The lead in this story is the Ancient of Days is coming, and the saints win. It's being lost by this little bit of information. It's a tough piece of information. It's a tough thing to swallow myself. It's a tough thing for you and I to think about. But you've lived long enough on this planet to know. Things are a little tougher here than God intended. Things are not supposed to turn out the way they've been. That one of the greatest promises in Scripture is an end of sorrow, suffering, pain, and, and, and separation from God. But it happens when the Ancient of Days comes. And he sets all things right. And our guy Daniel is heartbroken for what he just read. What he's just been told. He's heartbroken because he's, he's living through a judgment on his people. He's living through the, the, the prevailing of Babylon over his people. He's been told that Israel isn't the next empire. Medo-Persia is. Israel isn't the third empire. Greek Greece is. He doesn't know that yet, but it will be told to him later. Israel isn't even the fourth empire. That they will be dominated again and again and again. And then the world's going to divide up into these little pieces, which are weird in their own right, but among the little pieces will come this horn who will again dominate the people of God. And for Daniel, he sees the rest of Israel's history being under the thumb of somebody. And it breaks his heart. Because there's nothing more important to him than the reestablishment of his people. That is the context for 7, 8, and 9. Unless you understand Daniel's heart, 7, 8, and 9 don't hang together very well. If you understand this deep concern he has here, it's as it's opening itself up, 7, 8, and 9 start to make more sense. So he gets the answer from the, from the uh, angels, but... Does more answer help? He says, the angel says in the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heavens shall be given over to the people and the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, the Most High's kingdom, is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey Him. It's going to be okay. God is God, and He will take care of the people who serve Him. Daniel still struggles. He's just seen the same story. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Europe. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Europe. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Europe. Sees the same story. He sees the same end of the story. The end of the first in chapter 2, the whole statue is ground up and the kingdom of God prevails. If you had seen statues in statue in chapter two, you would assume this isn't going to take very long. Maybe a thousand years. Empire, 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 the divided empire, then Jesus comes. This story will end the same way, but Daniel's still heartbroken. This is the actual size of the rebuilt Ishtar gate that I promised you. That's the gate in the Berlin Museum. If you looked close at some of these people, you might see some people you recognize. But right now, my glasses aren't clear enough to tell you. As for me, Daniel, as the ch- as the story wraps up, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed. Chapter seven is giving us a link between two and seven, as Daniel gets an opening message from God. He does so. Given this given this message, that parallels everything he'd seen in chapter 2. There's a little bit of addition, and it breaks his heart. It leaves him struggling, and it leaves him worried about the future. And there'll be more about this tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'll start putting together some of the timelines and pieces as chapter 8 unfolds some of those things. So 7 and 8... Are going to wander across each other, and you'll see them. We'll start putting together some of these long pieces of timelines that are being described. I didn't bring; I, I skipped over one here that talks about how long some of this domination will take place. But I want you to understand again today that this prophecy is twenty five hundred years old. And chapter two said, "In the days of those kings, the European division of Rome." Jesus would come. You and I are still living in the European division of Rome. You and I are still living in the days of those kings. The second half of this tells a story about a domination that takes place during the reign of these kings over the communities of God, over the people of God. We'll get deeply into that. We'll get probably more things than you want to know about some of the, some of the activities of the Roman Empire. But they're significant as they show this piling on. A very important story. We'll unpack it again because Revelation approaches it four more times. This is so important in Scripture that it's told five times. This dominating period by this little horn power. Because God wants us to know what's coming so that when it comes we don't lose our faith. I want you to catch that really important piece of information. God does not want us to know what's coming so that we can worry. He doesn't want us to know what's coming so that we can feel superior. He wants us to know what's coming so that when we see it, when we see it coming, we look at it and we say, God knew this was happening. And he warned us. And our faith, instead of being disrupted, is strengthened it. So, more about this tomorrow. This is a representation of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. There's some great archaeological work being done on these. I hope you I, I don't know if you're as interested in this stuff as I am. I spent a couple hours investing in learning about that hanging gardens of Babylon because they were just so amazing to me. I'll tell you what I know, as I can know, as I do. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your blessings to us. I'm grateful for your blessings to us through Daniel. I'm happy to know that after 50 years, he finally heard from you himself. Lord, when we get the answers to the prayer we've been holding out for you for 50 years, I pray that you would strengthen us to hear the whole message. That when you speak to our hearts, we would hear the things we don't want to hear in faith. To hear that, yes, there will be difficult things, there will be difficult times, but you are God and you have not evacuated your throne, and that we can rest in you through whatever time comes, in Jesus' name.